This episode of Untold Stories is sponsored by BitCasino. You'll hear more about them later on in this episode. What is up, everyone? I am Charlie Shrem, and you are listening and watching Untold Stories, where twice a week we get to dive deep with some of crypto's most influential leaders, also global leaders, brilliant people, uh, life-changing visionaries, those who have decided to make their lives, their life goals, to be about taking the experiences that they learned, uh, good and bad, and then helping others, you know, not make the same mistakes, but at the same time, like live a more joyous and fulfilling life. And if we could understand all of that within the context of not just crypto and Bitcoin, but also of the world, I feel like we'll understand where we're going uh, with this whole industry, with our lives, uh, with all of the future. Uh, going back, I feel like the the like the overarching theme of the past 196 episodes is like using the tools, using the past, understanding the knowledge, then thinking for ourselves. Hopefully during coronavirus, you took this show and whatever decisions that you made, at least you made them on your own. That's all I ever ask. I just want people to make decisions on their own. And there's no better person than my guest today, my one of my best friends. It's I don't say that often. Mike Kimmelman, thank you so much for coming on Untold Stories today. My pleasure. Great to be here, Charlie. Mike, you are a best-selling author of Confessions of a Wall Street Insider. Uh, you are an expert on disrupt disruptive innovation and personal disruption. You've used the lessons of your life to offer inspiration and insight into the future. You're constantly your your whole your business and your livelihood is traveling around the world, helping other people and 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 helping me especially over the last eight or nine years. You write an amazing email called Sovereign Sunday. And everyone who I've ever, you write it for free. Everyone who I've ever asked to read it is like, thank you so much for introducing me to Mike's email. Um, I like, I've introduced people like Morning Brew. I read the Morning Brew every day. It's a great setup, but people don't like come to me and say, thank you for introducing me to Morning Brew. Morning Brew is great. I love the Morning Brew. But Sovereign Sunday is something very different because it's a, it seems to me what you're taking with this, with this weekly email is more of like a your fundamental life, uh, uh, for the first time, you're not afraid to take your views of the world, your history, your life lessons, taking all those tools, putting it in, and then, and like, you know, no holds bar, unapologetically saying what you need to say. Why now? I appreciate that you say I'm not afraid to do it. Um, I am afraid, actually. That, that's part of the reason that I do it. It, it began, and I probably started about four or five months ago, really as almost therapy, just because we were living through such a unique time that was so frustrating and so ridiculous on so many different counts that I needed something, an outlet to, to rant, something to make sense of the world. And, and I think sense making is sort of an iterative process that's best done A, through writing, but B, through interacting with other people, smart people like yourself, people from diverse spaces. And writing this letter and interacting with people about it helped me make sense of what was going on. I mean, I have my own theories. We always have our own theories, but it, it helps to bounce that off people, get feedback, do the research when you're writing it, just like you. If you're writing for your podcast or anything else, I'm sure you research the guests, talk sure. to, you know, read what they've written. Uh, it helps. It helps to develop a thesis and to test that thesis when you put something in the public and put it out there. So that's that was the impetus for beginning it. 
And then it's just taken off from there. And like you said, the feedback's been good. I've been able to engage with a lot of different people on it. And I've been able to tackle subjects that maybe I didn't know a ton about, but through starting the writing process, research process and whatnot, dug in. And I do think it's, it's important, especially in this day and age, there, there's a suppression of information that's active and it's everywhere. Whether you want to call it censorship, whether it's called shadow banning or, or however you want to qualify it or quantify it, it's out there. So when it's you're not like an evil stuff- thing, though, right? It's not like it's a it's a it's an evil thing, potentially. It's just making, you know, they justify or rationalize it because they're making decisions for the betterment of the collective. And we saw that all, all along coronavirus. But finish your thought. No, and again, that could be, like you said, that could be good or it could be bad. It depends where it's coming from. Unfortunately, when you have a, call it, you know, an establishment, and we can call it different things, but the establishment opinion or narrative is not necessarily correct. And it's been more incorrect than anything else. And I think we've seen, especially in the last few months, where you saw massive suppression of anything that dared to question that official narrative. So whether it was masks, whether it was lockdowns, whether it was the origination of the virus, which frankly, um, you know, utilizing the most basic logic and investigation and things like Occam's razor, which I know you're familiar with, where, you know, without going too deep, the simplest explanation is is often the correct one. Common sense. Yeah, you, you had the only biohazard Logic. level four lab in China, in Wuhan, with going through a lot of different, um, you know, they moved the lab recently in December. All of the research done on gain of function was right there. And this virus just happened to originate there. Now, I don't know if that's the truth, that, that it was a leak, whether accidental or intentional. But the fact that you weren't allowed to discuss it and were labeled a conspiracy theorist, yes. a lunatic. All throughout the year. Alarming. Yeah. For the for the the sake of the collective. Do folks do you do you hear why this is starting to be alarming? Yes, this pandemic was was really bad and a lot of people died. I had a coronavirus. Mike, I think you had coronavirus. I don't remember. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it was it was shitty. However, there will be future events where our establishments will have to make decisions for the sake of the collective. And if we don't challenge those now, if we don't look at what happened during that last year, like you said, now all of a sudden the emails come out, everything comes out, all the data we know. And, and you know, to, to kind of weave that Bitcoin thread through all of this, for the first time, Satoshi gave us a tool to create our own self-sovereignty, to actually not only think for ourselves, but putting our money where our mouth is, right? Uh, and so you and I were just at Bitcoin 2021, 50,000 people was immense. It was set the precedence for the energy of why is Bitcoin important? That question was the, was what I heard so much and so often. And the answers were so brilliant. I think the whole DeFi and the whole crypto world, because that's in its own box, it's now allowing for the talk again over what is Bitcoin and why is Bitcoin specifically not in the crypto box, why is Bitcoin, why is self-sovereign money so important? And part of your emails is talking not just about Bitcoin, but all these tools from, 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 from the, the who, the what, the where, the why, and the when. So really, like, for those who don't really understand, not just Bitcoin, but why is the concept, why should I care if I'm making my paycheck and then I'm paying my bills and I'm living a happy life, go round, 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 I'm living paycheck to paycheck. Why should I care about Bitcoin? 
Why should I care about self-sovereign money? Why should I care? A lot of people, they just don't understand. Yeah, it's a great thing to buy stocks and shit, you know, and to make money. Why, why do I need to be my own bank? It's a great question. And I love answering it. Uh, how, how do you kind of jump at that? So I used to answer it a little bit differently than I'll answer it today. And I used to answer it based on my personal experience with the criminal justice system. When I went through a very you know, traumatic event back in late 2009, 2010, where I was accused of a crime, and I was a lawyer and, and believed in the American system of justice and the Constitution and presumed innocence and, and all those grand attributes and theories that we have about the justice system. And as I was accused, my bank accounts were shut. My credit cards were turned off. My wife's business accounts were turned off. That was before any evidence was presented. So that made me realize that the money we claim to have in our bank account that you might have in your Wells Fargo account that you think is yours or your Merrill Lynch account, it's really not yours. It's yours until someone flips a switch, whether that's the IRS, the state agencies, any of, and it's, you know, somebody else in justice, it's not your money. And that opened up the window for me to really dig into it. The reason I think now that I think it's urgent or important for people to at least understand Bitcoin and why it's important is, is there's multiple reasons, probably the biggest one, and it's an immediate one, is the economic impact of our policies right now. We have, we have monetary and financial madness, for lack of a better term. And it's something, you know, I thought it was madness in 2015, 2016. Certainly it was madness in 20, you know, 2009 and 2010, when as part of that crisis, we, we had like a $780 billion TARP relief bill. And it, and it was the most ridiculous thing in the world at that time. I, I thought the numbers were so outrageous. And this was coming just, if you think about it, look where we've been in history. In, in 1998, like a decade before that, for, for those of us like me who are old enough to remember and were in markets at Wall Street back then, there was long-term capital management where the most brilliant people on Wall Street got together, started a hedge fund. And when that hedge fund blew up, somehow this $4 billion hedge fund was going to threaten the entire macro global economic financial landscape. And they had to be bailed out. And the number was $4 billion. And the debate about giving them a $4 billion relief was so vicious and, and controversial and confrontational. And, and there were people you know, who were against it who said, this is moral hazard. These are free markets. If you believe in free markets and capitalism, these guys made really bad bets. They have to be allowed to fail. And the banks that lent them money that didn't do proper due diligence or didn't have proper risk controls, they should be hurt. And in 1998, you know, we made the decision that really set the stage for the rest of, of what we see today in that we bailed them out. And, and I let understand, them get away. like, I understand and, and, the whole too big to fail concept, Mike. And, but in criminal justice, they go to the victims. So when these banks are failing or they're making the wrong decisions, like in that situation that we see all the auto make everything, why don't we do the hard work of actually just taking care of the victims in that sense, but not bailing out, you know, the executives and the big banks. And I know this concept of like the big banks never went to jail. It's we've talked about it for 10 years. It's exhausting already. But I mean, it is. And, and I don't want to talk about that part. What I want to talk about is just the sheer absolute numbers. So you went from four billion where the, the entire economic system was threatened and we needed to bail it out to a, a decade later, it was 800 billion. And I couldn't understand. I don't think many wow. people could understand that gap. That, that growth was enormous. And then a mere decade later now, 
800 billion is a pittance. We're talking about six, seven trillion a year. So the numbers have become so far beyond understandable that we're, we've officially reached the just kick the can down the road and we're going to run this thing till the wheels fall off. There's nobody out there who actually believes we can pay off our debts at this point. And it's, it's deliberate at this point where we're just going to try to inflate it away or at least keep some monetary and financial stability till we could either outgrow some of these problems, till there's a, a smoother shift, till technology rescues us, you know, till there's an alien invasion, whatever it is, we have no ability to rein in the spending the profligacy right now. So the only thing that protects you from that, and, and it has, it's going to have tremendously bad implications for the next few years. So we've got inflation at 5%. Look at the last but, 10 know. years of data. Bitcoin has been the best hedge against inflation in the last yes. 10 years, longer. But you didn't, you didn't need it for the last 10 years, to be frank. You didn't need it. You know, the dollar was, was certainly losing value. It's probably lost 40% of its value since 2000. But, you know, stock markets and everywhere else are up more than that. So you could have been invested in real assets, in stocks, in elsewhere. And again, that only really matters, matters for the top 50% because the bottom 50% are paycheck to paycheck at best. But now you've reached a point that, that's a complete tipping point where if you have headline inflation at 5%, and just like every other government oh or God, institution it's... these days, those statistics are totally bogus. Add a zero. They're completely geared. They're manipulated. So if you go to somewhere like Shadow Stats, yeah. which is you know it, a better inflation site, and it measures inflation, they have different metrics, but it measures it like we used to measure it in 1980, 1990. You'll see the real numbers probably around 14 or 15 percent. And at that rate, Michael Saylor and the stuff he talks about makes a lot of sense because you're going to debase the dollar by anywhere from 15 to 25% a year and, and possibly more. I mean, we printed, as everybody knows, something like 30% of the dollars in history last year. So when that happens, the dollar goes lower, prices go higher, it, just to be very simple about it. So eggs, you know, you could still be getting the same paycheck, maybe even get a little bit of a bump. You know, you went from 14 bucks to 15 bucks an hour, or whatever the number is, 50 grand to 52 grand. Eggs, which were once two fifty, are now five ninety nine in the store. So crazy, there are hundred percent right? bumps in clothing, in food, in, in all things that people use, in gas. And Bitcoin is one of the few things that will retain its value. That's why the store of value thesis ha has sprouted bigger than anything else when it comes to that that subject. And the reason that it's it's such a perfect hedge against inflation is that it's the only fully decentralized because it's on a path to decentralization, fully decentralized, uh, uh, non-fungible, uh, sorry, fungible digital asset that does not rely on anything. So there's, there's full equality, the color of your skin, where you are, any of that does not matter. It's full on 100% censorship resistance money. And, yeah. and just like energy and everyone, anyone who studied any physics classes and any science related, anything knows that we have things like latency, we have energy, we'll always look for the fastest, the fastest place, you know, from point A to point B, there's a word for it, I forgot when it, energy is always looking for the, I'm an idiot right now, but anyways, but that works in markets too. Markets are gonna look for the most, if capital is gonna go towards the most efficient place and capital is going towards, look at just, look at it as a capital movement. Capital is moving towards, the, the trend over the last 10 years is moving towards more, self-sovereign money and not just crypto people are buying up uh you know currencies of countries that have been more fiscally responsible 
and that actually have the ability to control their own currencies. So people like, oh, you know, look what happened with Cyprus. Everyone who had euros in Cyprus got a 20% haircut or whatever it was. So like if you got $100 in your bank account, now you have 80. And I'm like, guys, the same thing happened in the U.S. The only thing is Cyprus didn't have the ability to print money. So they just took it off to bank accounts. In the U.S., we just printed 30% of all the dollars. Same thing just happened. The same thing. We just emperors. It's just different clothes. It's the same, yeah. same thing. And I think you have, you know, you expressed it very well. It's for, to simplify it, it's just tamper-proof. Tamper-proof money that you can't seize, you can't change, you can't manipulate. And it's scarcity because it's got a cap supply. And I can't tell you from 35 years on Wall Street how rare that is. True economic scarcity doesn't exist almost anywhere. Wow. And I saw that when I was trading in the late 90s, you had the tech bubble. And the reason there was a bubble was, A, you know, there was a lot of the economy was doing very well. You had a new paradigm and some new technologies, which were exciting. But the reason prices exploded like they did was you had a cap supply, at least temporarily. So people would come public, they'd sell 1% of the outstanding supply. And people do those, those manipulations yeah. and tricks now in, in certain altcoins and whatnot. But back then, you could sell 1% of Red Hat or Juniper or CMGI or any of these other names. And because you had you know, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars wanting in and just a very small number of outstanding shares available, issued and available, prices went ballistic. Now, the difference between Bitcoin and that type of scenario is in public markets, you can always do secondaries. So Red Hat or, or you name it, Linux, all of them intelligently said, hey, just like AMC or GameStop just did, you know, our stock's up 400%, 500%. We think it's worth a fraction of that. You'd have to be an idiot not to sell stock at these prices because you're not, you know, you're going to dilute the company less than if you had sold it 80% cheaper. So there was endless supply of stock that came onto the market at that point. And any other asset, except for possibly real estate and a little bit to gold, and this is stock to flow. Bitcoin's it. It's the only one with a cap supply. I mean, when, when gold spikes, you can do more mining. When real estate does really well, you can do more building mm. almost anywhere. Look at Miami, where we just were. I mean, Miami got bailed out really by the idiotic progressive policies of places like New York and California. I mean, New York, you know, you get screamed at if you walked outside without a mask when you're walking your dog. You couldn't open businesses. You couldn't do anything. So anybody with any type of freedom or capital said, why am I here? I'm going to go to Florida. Nothing's changed in Florida. They're actually open. They're doing better medically, financially, in every single way than, than New York. So you had a massive exodus from New York to Florida, which bailed out. There was a lot of big towers in, in Miami yeah. that were being built that oh, yeah. might not have gotten filled. Prices were To the economy, soft. they were so worried oh, here. In the yeah. first like three months, when especially when the governor shut down like all hotels and vacation rentals, and all businesses that first 30 days, they were so worried Florida was like going to go bankrupt, you know? But then what, what happened was because there was such a pressure for Florida to not go bankrupt, common sense overrode the need to save the collective as they did yeah. in New York. So that person who's yelling at you for walking your mask, walking your dog, I don't blame that person. I blame the TV that they watched, the news anchor who read that you have to wear a mask while walking your dog because they got it from a local New York Department of Health collective by some stupid idiot sitting in a room somewhere who wrote that based on some other opinion. And then all of a sudden, thousands, tens, hundreds of thousands of people have to make that decision based on what one person thinks. 
That's literally what happened in every state. There was sure. no evil thing. There was no conspiracy theories. It was stupid people making decisions for the collective. Now, there are very smart people in those offices, but you know what happened? They were suppressed. They were, they were told my doctors couldn't even write articles because the medical community suppressed them because we had to follow the totalitarian regime of Dr. Fauci or whatever it was. And that's, what, and that's my problem. It's all of a sudden in one minute, the world became a totalitarian world for a month mm -hmm. or two until common sense prevails, prevailed. And it scared the shit out of me, Mike. Scared the it, shit it, out of me. It, it, it was still depressing. Should, frankly, all collectivism is, you know. How do you learn Soviet the, Union? None of it begins as totalitarianism or, or Nazism or communism or any of the other big isms. It all starts out with what's best for the most. And let's try to do that. But it quickly runs into a situation where you're trampling individual rights. And the great thing about America yeah. is we've always had the Constitution. And that was completely set aside. Thankfully, and you had, you, you know, again, the, the ends never justified the means. And the way we did things over the past 16 months, it, it's very rare that government takes power and gives it back. I think that would be the exception. The and they've been given a lot of power. But you're right. It's not the person at home. Uh, who should be blamed, but that's the only person that I could possibly reach. And maybe I'm wasting my time trying to reach them. I'm not going to change, like you said, the New York Department right. of Health. I'm not going to change Cuomo, his opinions, oh my or God. De Blasio. But that person sitting at home who gets their news from a, a plastic box and an idiot talking on that plastic box, that person can be, can be educated. That person can be reached and made to understand that you, know, you have to question the information and where it's coming from. You have to be able to make sense of the incentives behind that person saying what he's saying, why they're doing it, what the impact is. And that never has really been done. And, and it may not be the best use of my time, your time, or anybody else's time that's trying to push back against this totalitarian, this, this medical surveillance system, the woke you know, side sure. that, that's changing from, from the ground, everything that we grew up with uh, and, and you know, threatening liberty and freedom oh, and whatnot. Yeah, was... but, you know, it could be a waste of time trying to reach that person. They may be so far gone that we're better off. And I've written about this repeatedly in the letter, really defending the perimeter or withdrawing to defensible situations like Florida or Texas sure. or, or much of the South or Southwest places that didn't fall for this, you know, this complete planned epidemic for, for lack of a better term. And again, COVID's real. I, I wouldn't want it. I got it. I wouldn't wish it on anyone. But our reaction to it and what we did to our country was completely unnecessary. And that part we'll be paying for maybe for decades, maybe forever. I think we're, we're literally at a tipping point of whether this country continues to exist in the fashion we've known it for the past 200 years or so. And whether it balkanizes, whether you see secession, whether you just see fragmentation, or, or whether it falls into a, a really scary, you know, dystopian surveillance type society, um, you know, where, where we go vax passports and then everything else and yeah. the government has a say in real time measuring 1984. Yeah, that, that's that's, you know, people mocked it, but that's where we are right now. I mean, the conspiracy theorists from, you know, a year ago are, are 10 and 0. Nobody on the other sides had had any victories or has been correct about anything. So, you know, we're, we're in dangerous waters to put it mildly i love these guys over at coin gaming and bit casino because saint patty's day valentine's day they're always offering us new promos when you go over to untoldstories.link forward slash 
big casino, and now they're actually giving away three Teslas. I love it. Elon Musk, Tesla, Coin Gaming, Bit Casino. They're giving away three Teslas from April 12th to June 27th. All you have to do is go to the link that I mentioned before, untoldstories.link forward slash Bit Casino, and you can go in there and take part in the 10 highest win multiplier tournaments. You go in there, and if you play the tournaments and the certain slot machines, and if you get into the top 10, you automatically get entered into a raffle at the end of the, the timeline. I think it's June 27th. And you'll be able to win one of three Teslas. I mean, I don't see where the risk is there because these guys are awesome. I love playing crypto gaming. I love my sponsors and I love Tesla. And I know Elon Musk loves Bitcoin, Tesla, Dogecoin and everything else. So make sure you check them out. Untoldstories.link forward slash BitCasino. You know, when we when we make decisions for our own, we can kind of get out of those dangerous waters because we're not like a million people drowning, you know, for not to use a crude. And, crude and that's, you know, that's that's why we love crypto too, because it's distributed, it's decentralized, it's liberty, it's freedom-based. That's the way, you know, when you have complex systems and there's very few things more complex than the US economy, the global economy, our political systems and whatnot, you cannot do a command and control top-down. It just will never work. Whether it's Obamacare, whether it's anything else, you can't organize 300, 400 million people by executive diktat or fiat, it doesn't work. You have to have free markets. And to have free markets, you have to have real-time pricing because pricing is the informational tool that allows you to efficiently allocate capital to make decisions and do those types of things. And, and this manipulation we've done with our economy, with the dollar, with, with voting, with everything else means we don't have real signals out there. So it's impossible to allow markets to operate We've shifted somewhere in the last 20 years, maybe it's 40 years, to much more of a crony capitalism type yeah. society. It doesn't really, you know, free markets don't really exist in the way they should in order to properly allocate. So we've got our work cut out for us to get back to a system where, you know, individuals can make free choices and be penalized for those choices or rewarded for those choices. And that's, you know, again, I don't know what the political alignment will be whether we're going to have to go to some type of two-tier. Um, but the inequality gap is absolutely blowing out. That was something that was concerning. So I want to I want to yeah. talk about that for a second. Because when I, mm -hmm. you know, when I got out of, I don't have any of the statistics to, to prove it, but I, I, just like you, I grew up in Brooklyn, a melting pot of the world. Um, my, one of my neighbors was black. My other neighbor was Chinese. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter. It didn't ever matter. I grew up yep. in a place where it didn't matter. I'm very grateful for that. Um, definitely affects my life today. And I felt like during those years I was growing up, high school, college, the advent of 2004, 5, 6, 7, 8, cell phone, the internet, we were going towards like a very globalized world. We can have debates without bringing in that race card or the gender card. And we were going towards that. And then like there were a lot of the political correctness and blah, blah, blah. And some of those other things came. But you talk about something that I didn't really know much about in one of your emails called critical race theory. What is that? And how is that a result of us not thinking for ourselves. How does how is that a a how is that related to what we're talking about with Bitcoin today? Well, well, it's very group based, and as somebody again, if collectivism is the the fear and the concern, there's no more collectivist approach than to determine somebody based on an immutable characteristic, the color of their skin, and that's it. Deserves or doesn't deserve something. Uh... That's literally what we fought about from, you know. So it's a framework that was figured out. 
basically. And we don't have time to go in, in sure. depth. I, I would urge yeah, people to, like to research it, to go to fair, see what fair's done with it. But what you really have is somebody saying, and I find it completely disempowering. Uh, for the individual. To somebody yeah. who's black, you know, and, and I'm just going to use generic terms because it, it sure. applies to different minorities in different ways. But you're saying to somebody who's black, you can't succeed. You won't be able to prosper without being given something by this white patriarchy or white supremacist society we live in, which again, I'm like you, I went to an LA city public school that had tons of, of Latino, tons of black students, tons of Persians, Asians, everybody under the sun. I never understood why that was something that was fought back against that like whole, we don't need that supremacy, but I never understood that it was, it was I say our own, but it was like the own fault of the ones who developed that framework in the beginning. So maybe the best idea is to kind of like bring it all away. And a lot of, and honestly, the reason that I bring up such a sensitive topic was one of the things that made me fall in love with Bitcoin was that you started doing business with and transacting with and talking with people on the internet. And because you can start transacting with them, you didn't need to ask the questions even like, you know, you're selling, I'm selling a JetBlue voucher or, you know, a, a, a yo-yo to someone on a forum. I don't need to know their name or where, you know, like their, their banking information. It removes the inequalities from these transactions. So I was like really liking the direction that Bitcoin and, and like crypto was, was bringing us towards this, like where the variable or the metric of like religion who, what, where, it just was removed or never even right. asked in the first place. Right. That's Absolutely. what I like. And, you know, from a race-based perspective, we've struggled as a country and, you know, we can openly admit we've struggled. Yeah, we have. But the goal is to get towards that idealistic vision where we're not judging people based on their race. It's like the and Lorax or whatever. Back. It's a reductive, regressive philosophy that basically judges you 100% by your race. You know, like I said, an immutable characteristic that you can't change. And that's wrong. It tells black kids that they are victims, that they could never succeed in this society. You'd be hard pressed to find a more disempowering ideology Ugh. than that. And mm -hmm. it also tells white children that they're evil. Takes all your dignity away. They're the cause of all the problems. Again, without regard to reality on the ground. You know, I went to school uh, for a year, private school at Harvard Westlake. It wasn't Westlake yet because we didn't allow girls yet, but it was just Harvard. And there were students who were the sons and daughters of extremely successful Hollywood celebrities, lawyers, and whatnot, who happen to be black. It's unfair to give those people a massive advantage over somebody, over a person, just because they're white, that comes from, yeah. call it rural Appalachia, or somebody else that had no money, or the wrong side of the tracks on Van Nuys. It's not just anybody else. this, though. It's like... It's not, people don't like, it's such a stupid analogy, but like, you know, you have like Sephardic and Ashkenazi Jews, you know, like, and yeah. there's no difference. Like, it's just where you came from. Sure. But growing up because of this, I don't want to say like the application of critical race theory in my school, but because of the concept that we needed to like be the saviors of one group, they were, I was, you know, they, they would allocate certain like quotas in certain spots for certain people just because of like, you know, like if they're from, you know, like, like the, the Russian or Europe or European parts of European Jewry or like the Middle Eastern Jew, like I was like, 
but again, that whole concept of like, you know, creating rules for that collective and removing people's dignity. We need to like go away with that. We need to empower the individual person and like remove that whole like victimhood and everything like that. I wanted to though. Let, let me make two yeah. quick points on it just to wrap that up. So I'm not saying that there are not uneven situations. And, and again, True. I don't believe in, in equity. I believe in equality under the law. That's what we've, you know, again, the constitution everywhere else, the 14th amendment we strive for from the beginning. So let's not ignore the realities. There are, you know, whether it's urban areas or, or minority children who don't have access to the same resources that probably deserve some type of help, but let's do it based on economic factors, not on the color of your skin. That, that's a gross abomination of, you know, choosing race. It's race-based discrimination, A, which is, is not allowed under the 14th Amendment. But it's also, like you said, it's reducing somebody's net worth their entire existence just to the color of their skin. Good intentions so, aren't transferable. Yeah, if they have economic needs, let, let's, let's help them out. Again, same part. If there's a very poor white student that needs some help somewhere or a very poor Latino student, absolutely. Let's and get I, more resources. I hate to say it, but it's 99.9% yeah. .9 of the time, it's the politicians that are governing these places that are that are the most corrupt and taking advantage of, of those communities. It doesn't matter who or where they are. And that's actually the perfect absolutely. thread because we understand to own Bitcoin and to, to basically use that as a, as a hedge against the evils of the world. But a lot of my listeners like really didn't like where they were living during coronavirus. They really were, you know, woke, not to use that term. You're, I'm watching the Kaminsky method and he's like, yeah, my classmates say I'm woke or when he was all excited about it, he didn't know. But um, a lot of people don't like where they live, don't like their local city commission, their mayors, their cities, whatever, you know, like hyper, hyper local. They want to move. Uh, you want to move. People, everyone wants to move. They want to, you know, change. What can they look for in their local towns and cities and villages or even states as like a more freer place to live? Should we even care? Yeah, I think we should. Um, and, and obviously we're in a very different, we're in two countries right now watching two different movies. Oh my God. So I don't know how that gets reconciled, but I want to be in the movie in the country that still values freedom and liberty, that still has constitutionalist principles, that still preaches things like like hard work and individual accountability and responsibility and not the country that that prints seven eight trillion dollars more than we have that destroys the dollar that that you know completely throws away the reserve status that we enjoyed and that you know we paid for with blood and treasure in world war ii and elsewhere uh we're heading towards an area now where you do have to choose and choose wisely and and i would rather i'm prevented from doing that by by personal family sure. situations, but you have to find and align with a community that supports your values. That's the only way defend the perimeter, whether it's, you know, hold the pass, whether it's Florida, Texas, like I said, and it may be other countries, you know, partially, I know people who are for the first time giving up on, on the American dream and giving up on, you know, where we're going know, because so they sad. see the trends are really bad. And again, we're still, I have not by any means given up on it. Um, yeah. We're still call it the, you know, a shitty boat in, the, in a really shitty flotilla, um, you know, but our economy is still the strongest in the world. We still have the strongest military and we still have a very highly educated base, but we've got tremendous problems that need to be addressed and they're not going to be addressed by, you know, a Biden administration. 
um, or, or people who believe in, you know, forced mandatory vaccinations. Could like America, yeah. Could America do with one of these like technocrat type presidents, like a hyper economic from Singapore or one of those? Yeah, like one of those like apolitical purse people. Would it work here or there needs to be political finesse in order to make things work? Honestly, I mean, and and it's controversial, but yeah, you you kind of, it, it would work. And the reason is, is because we have no, you know, democracy works Balance. somewhat when you have an educated population. Yeah. And we don't have an educated population, unfortunately. And we don't have people also that respect, you know, individual liberties. So that's a bad combination. I mean, we've had public schools and elsewhere that if you look at the numbers, you know, maybe half the people that, that go through the system actually are educated. And are they educated or are they just repeating rote, you know, knowledge that they've learned? But there's they, a systematic that can be applied. There's a systematic effort to keep not, you know, dumb people dumber, like to keep them dumb, not yes. dumb, dumber, to keep, well, I mean, there's any, a systematic reason for that. A small minority of people in control, you know, whether we call them elitists or the system or the deep state or the whatever it is, yeah. or, or political oligarchs, the American royalty, when you have call it, you know, a couple thousand people trying to control 400 million you need to control the money. You need to control the dissemin- dissemination of information. Money is the key because if you control the money, you control the population. That's where Bitcoin is the only bit of hope yeah. you know, that I've seen. If there was no Bitcoin, I don't know what, what would you do? What I, don't, well, what I don't understand about Bitcoin, I know it's crazy. I'm like, All right, we're going to end the show now. No, what, <laughs> what I don't understand about Bitcoin was how it's such an anomaly into no- the normal course of the world spinning. It's like the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs. Like the world was spinning and doing its normal course and every all the ener- so all of the energy transference that was happening within earth was happening within earth, right? All the energy energy cannot be created or destroyed, only transferred. But if you look at like in a very crude way during that era, all of the energy that was being transferred happened within a certain box and that box was planet earth, right? Yeah. Uh, and then all of a sudden, like a crazy outlier just came in. Bitcoin is kind of like that outlier. It shouldn't have been. It shouldn't be. So sure. it freaks me out. It, I lose sleep over trying to like figure out how Bitcoin came to be or like who Satoshi is. Because the best answer I could think of sometimes is like, maybe it's like the way the world, humanity is coming back from the future so we can save ourselves. I don't know. Or it's just a bunch of brilliant people who realize the only way to save the world is to do it in a way where it's completely anonymous. I don't know. But whoever it was, diamonds are created under pressure. And this diamond was created because there was an immense amount of pressure. But I feel like the world, we have not felt that pressure on the surface yet. But it's there. And that's what scares me. Yeah. No, I think you've been underground for a while. I have as well. When you've been in the sector this long, um, it's hard to see the forest for the trees a little bit. And one of the takeaways I had from Bitcoin Miami was, you know, despite the excesses that everybody loved to talk about and whatnot, was that this is what a monetary and economic and possibly a social revolution looks like in motion. Now, if you look back to, you know, when 2016, when we would go to conferences or whatever the time was, it was fun. You know, it, it was a new technology. We thought it had tremendous potential. Yep. It could possibly change the world, but it wasn't doing that yet. 2021, 
when Jack Mahlers was on stage and he talked about, you know, El Salvador, when people talked about forming banks that were pure crypto banks, when talking in conversations with other people and, and, you know, again, I'm mostly a maximalist, but less so after that conference, even in talking to a lot of the Ethereum, you know, co-developers and whatnot, you're seeing a DeFi monetary, you know, and, and which has political implications, obviously. It's insane. Revolution it's insane. taking place in real time. It's insane. It's, it's so, it it's a Bitcoin wallet, not, yeah. not a USDC wallet, mind you. I love USDC or whatever. Not an Ethereum wallet. Talking about a Bitcoin wallet, fully decentralized, self-sovereign money where there's no foundation or Vitalik's or community to make decisions on behalf of the collective. Guys, the whole point of crypto is when you don't have small groups making decisions for the whole. That's the whole point. So yeah, I love trading everything too. Don't Mike and I love it too. But at the end of the day, don't forget why, why we are here. When you have an El Salvadorian can literally download a Bitcoin wallet on his shitty phone. He's now a global or she is a global player or they a global player on the economic stage can can do business with that El Salvadorian can now do business with a fucking factory in China or do business with a a a you know someone a someone who fishes in Greenland without the need to ask who are you Mr. El Salvadorian who were you before when there's none of that race any of that the whole world is equal and efficient now it's beautiful i think and that's it takes, it takes time i think the the problem you and i and, and many other people in the space have is we are futurists and, you know, I've been very accurate with predictions, whether it's, uh, you know, housing bus, tech bus, Bitcoin, you know, the, the growth of cannabis as an investor and whatnot, and psychedelics. I know I missed that one. We see the future for lack of a better term and we see where it's going, but that gap between where we know it's going to go and it getting there yeah. feels like forever and you get frustrated. And frankly, you know, the world's going to be very different in the next five to 10 years. It's not going to be a world we recognize. But that's why, you know, the day to day, you have to take the steps to, to keep moving along that path because it's too late when you wake up and it's already changed. So if, if you're not making moves right now as a, as a person, for your family, for yourself, for your community, and like you said, that may include moving to a place that's aligns better politically uh, or economically with, with what you desire, then, then you're doing yourself a great disservice. Um, but don't, don't be wrong or, or don't get this disillusion that was what a monetary revolution looks like in real time yeah and, and like we said it may take a decade but you know things happen over time and you look back and you're shocked uh, i'll give you two examples S cell phones and smartphones really only came out in like 2010 yeah. you know once you start getting apps and all that and then think about the world in the last decade compared to what it was for the previous 100 years or 50 years or 40 years it, it's like nothing you recognize and, and a lot of that's you know, negative as well. You got people walking around just staring at their phone, you know, or, or out somewhere instead of talking to the person next to them at dinner, they're, they're staring at their phones. So it, there's been a lot of change, but as a society, you know, the biggest companies are Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, yeah. and, you know, Amazon and Microsoft. That all happened in the last decade, 10 years. I'll give you one other, like 20 years ago, you know, I, I got invited to speak in Dubai or to go to Dubai. And I was like, Dubai, Dubai. it's like a backwards desert, desert. You, know, that, you know, look at Dubai now. It's, it's a world financial center. It, it's one of the, all most of our friends advanced. move there yeah, and it's awesome there. It's so yeah. great. I love going there.
Absolutely. No, it's so true. I asked my doctor the other day, I was like, hey, doc, I was having some neck pain because I'm walking around with my phone while I, and I was like, how do you, how do, what's the, what's the, the, you know, the body intuitive way of like walking with your phone? How do you do it? He goes, you don't <laughs> stop. <laughs> You're killing your neck, your spine, <laughs> but it just goes to show you like, yeah, Mike, how can, how can my listeners uh, uh, read your emails and and get involved you know contact you i know you're you're involved in some sure. projects and things yeah sovereign sunday um you know go to substack find me on instagram uh it's probably where i'm most yeah we'll active. have it all in the show notes Facebook. too uh i'm also starting to to do again some some coaching and teaching i've got a group starting tuesday awesome go hard so it's a mix of i'll call it markets and mindset it's a mix of, of financial training and a lot of these alternative investing uh, that basically doesn't get taught anywhere. Obviously, we're on a very different ladder now than we were when I grew up. And, you know, the Jeremy Siegel, hey, just put a little bit of stocks, you know, a little bit of money in the, in the stock market and you'll be fine. And you'll get the same job after you graduate from college and work for 30 years. You've got such a dynamic and radical change in investing and finance and professional careers that, that that part, I think somebody needs to tackle and really do it in a way that's balanced, understandable and explainable. And I pair it obviously with a lot of the mindset and execution training I already do for executive coaches. So that's where I'm having fun. Might even launch a monthly group to do that for people that have a little bit lower on the price scale. The world will be a better place. Yeah. The more people you coach because without you, I'd be in a ditch somewhere probably. So thank you. Thank and, you, brother. Uh, and, and likewise for you, uh, the podcast is amazing. Love being you. on it. Love the truth and economic freedom that you've been preaching now for really more than a decade. I mean, few people in the yeah. space have had a bigger impact than you. And I think that's, you know, the history books will certainly treat you favorably. Thank you. To your friends and the people that know the impact you've had. Thank now. you, bro. Oh, I miss you. And, and thank you for thank coming you. on the show and, and hopefully see you soon again. Awesome. Anytime, brother.